0: And if you have a Bible, you might want to turn with me to Acts chapter 4, the end of Acts chapter 4. And in the church Bible, that's page 1096. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32, and reading down to chapter 5, verse 11. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' "'Yes,' she said, "'that is the price.' Peter said to her, "'How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord?' Look, the feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is God's word. But considering what we've just seen in previous weeks, this is probably quite a surprise. So far, we've seen a flourishing church. We've seen a united, smoothly running church. Now, it's true that last week we saw the church facing a threat from outside. The authorities in Jerusalem tried to shut the church up. But here we have something completely different, a threat from within the church. A threat from within the church that leads to judgment falling on the church. But before we get to the judgment, we are shown a healthy church where unity is expressed in sacrificial sharing. This first section does two things. It shows us how things were normally in the early church, and therefore how they should be in the church today. And this section also sets the scene for what happens in chapter 5. It gives us a context for what we see in chapter 5. When we looked at the end of chapter 2, Luke gave us a picture of the church's life together. That life together was characterized by learning, sharing, praying, and praising together. And here, Luke focuses in on just one of those characteristics, sharing. And no doubt he picks this one because from this area of strength is going to come a major threat to their life together. But before he gets to the threat, Luke focuses on the strength. And notice, first of all, how he describes the people he's talking about in verse 32. He calls them believers. It's easy to skim over that, but it's worth thinking about. So far, the word church hasn't appeared in the book of Acts. The first time it's used is in chapter 5. And the word Christian won't appear until chapter 11. So far, Luke has been describing Jesus' followers as believers. And we might ask, well, so what? Why is that worth noticing? It's worth noticing because it shows us the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is not first and foremost about putting a label on ourselves, calling ourselves a Christian, although it is important to stand up and be counted for Jesus. Jesus. And following Jesus is not first and foremost about taking on a new lifestyle. Although following Jesus does lead to a new lifestyle. The heart of following Jesus involves believing. And if we ask, believing what? We've had the what explained for us in the opening chapters of Acts. Followers of Jesus believe that he was a man but more than just a man. He was God come to earth. And his death was not an accident. It was part of God's plan. It was to pay for your sin and guilt and mine. And the fact that God raised Jesus from death and exalted him to heaven, well, that means Jesus is Lord. We can find forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Jesus and only through Jesus. That's what these first believers believed. Or to put it another way, these are the truths they put their faith in. They didn't just nod their heads and say, yes, these things are true. They said, yes, these things are true and they make all the difference in the world. They mean everything to me. These are the truths I will stake my life on. The truth of God's love and forgiveness in Christ. That's the greatest treasure there is. And it's my treasure. This is what makes someone a follower of Jesus. You can have the label of Christian and you can have the lifestyle and yet not truly be a believer. Maybe some of you are in that situation. Maybe you blend in pretty well in a group of Christians. You don't look or sound out of place, but you've never become a believer. You've never put your faith in the good news about Jesus. Later in the service, We'll be remembering that good news as we share what's on this table, the bread and the wine. And maybe this morning you'll be able to say for the very first time, I put my faith in the truth that's represented by these symbols. I trust that although I deserve death, Jesus died in my place. And that means life for me. That's what it means to be a believer. Luke goes on to tell us that all the believers were one in heart and mind. They were united. And Luke highlights one way that unity was shown. Sacrificial sharing. Look again at verse 32. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Then down to verse 34. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. We need to be clear that this sharing was a voluntary thing. There was no rule that you had to sell everything if you wanted to join this community, or even that you had to sign everything over to the community. Chapter 5 will show that it was perfectly acceptable to keep things you owned. And if you sold anything, it was perfectly acceptable to keep the money you got for it. As far on as chapter 12, we're still reading about certain believers owning their own homes. So this was not a case of join us and throw everything you've got into our pot. This sharing is voluntary. It happened as needs arose. And the aim was not that everyone would have the same amount. The aim was that no one would be in need. When there was someone in need, someone else would respond by selling something and handing the funds to the apostles to distribute. That's what it means by putting it at the apostles' feet. At this point, those men were responsible for channeling the resources to those who needed them. So the picture here is of a community that's full of openness and trust. There's no selfishness or possessiveness. Those who have things make those things available to meet the needs of others. This is a community where people matter more than stuff. Now, if we ask how this might apply to us today, we need to be aware of the specific situation here in Jerusalem. At least some of the believers here were seriously poor. I don't mean poor in the sense that they couldn't afford the latest TV. I mean they were in need of daily food. And remember, too, many of these new converts weren't from Jerusalem. They came to the city for the Jewish feast of Passover, excuse me, of Pentecost. And when they were there for that feast, they responded to the message about Jesus. And now they're staying on in the city. They're learning more about Jesus. But obviously, these people need to eat. And it's possible that even at this early stage, some new converts are being rejected by their families because they've believed in Jesus. So in certain ways, the situation of this group of believers is different from ours. We are less likely to have members who are living from one meal to the next, or members who have no roof over their head. But all that means is that when those kind of genuine needs do arise, meeting those needs should be easier for us. It's not going to put a major strain on us as a fellowship. The problem is, when we're not in the habit of responding to those kind of needs, we can become quite possessive about our own stuff. And when a genuine need does arise, we can be hesitant to respond to it. Let's thank God that He's given most of us far more than we need. And let's be fully prepared to share when a need arises. One sign of our health as a church and our unity is that genuine needs are being met. Those who have are willing to share what they have, sacrificially. And notice that the health of the church in Jerusalem fueled its witness. Verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. The church with a healthy life together is not going to neglect witness. Internal health flows out in witness. True fellowship is never the enemy of evangelism. And when verse 33 says much grace was upon them all, I think it's talking about God's grace. This united witnessing fellowship is experiencing God's blessing. But something is about to happen that brings down God's judgment. And to help us understand what happens in chapter 5, chapter 4 ends with a specific example of sharing. We're told that a believer called Joseph sells a field and donates the money. And this generosity is at least part of the reason the apostles give him a nickname. They call him Barnabas. And we're told here that means son of encouragement. Today we might call him the encourager. Luke is showing us a man whose good deed earned him a reputation in the church. There's nothing negative in that. Acts will tell us plenty more about Barnabas. And he's consistently presented to us as a genuine man, a man who gave and served out of genuine motives. But nevertheless, Luke wants us to see that good deeds can lead to a reputation, a certain amount of fame. Being seen to be good can bring a reward, the reward of a higher status. And this had been noticed and it had been thought about by at least two people in the church, Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And as we hear their story, we're shown a threat to the church's health, selfishness expressed in deception. Their story is all the more shocking because of the unity that we've just heard about. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, at first glance, this isn't very shocking. It looks like Ananias does the same thing as Barnabas. But there is a significant difference. After they sell the property, Ananias and Sapphira agree together to keep some of the money from the sale. And we might ask, well, what's so bad about that? We're given the answer in verses 3 and 4. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 4 again makes it very clear. There was no rule saying Ananias had to sell his property. The church had made no claim to it. And even after he'd sold it, he was free to give as much or as little as he wanted to the church, or none at all. So the sin here is not that they kept some money back. The sin is that they entered into a deception. They claimed to be handing over the whole amount. And there's only one possible reason for that deception. They've seen Barnabas gain a reputation, and they want the same reputation. Their motivation is not love for others. If it was, they would have been honest. This couple is motivated by personal ambition, a desire for position and prestige in the church. Barnabas gained a reputation because of his genuine sacrifice. Ananias and Sapphira want the reputation without the sacrifice. And so they lie. Their aim is to create an an appearance that's impressive. The needs of others are not their real concern here. Well, Peter is given supernatural insight to discern what's going on. And when he confronts Ananias... Verse 5 says Ananias fell down and died. God's judgment was instant. Ananias is taken out and buried, and then verse 7 tells us about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Presumably, Sapphira has been somewhere else, and someone has been sent to find her. When she arrives, Peter gives her the opportunity to confess and repent. We were told in verse 1 that her husband had acted with her full knowledge. But now she has the chance to come clean, to forsake the sin that she's entered into. Verse 8, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, "'How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also.' At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events.' One person dropping dead might have been explained away as a coincidence. Two people can't be explained away so easily. It's obvious that God is at work here, and it causes people to tremble. Those are the basic details of this incident. And I'm going to guess that we have one main reaction to this. I would guess that we read this and we think, it's a bit extreme, isn't it? I mean, they told a lie, for goodness sake. It's not like they murdered anybody. Isn't God's reaction a bit out of proportion? Isn't it a bit harsh? Well, let's see if the passage itself has anything to say to our question. thing we're being shown here is something very basic. But it's something that we can forget very easily. All sin is serious. It's quite right that as Christians we emphasize God's love, his grace and his forgiveness. Those are all beautiful, life-saving truths. But those truths don't have any meaning unless we understand that sin is serious. We're only going to see the beauty of the cross if we first see the horror of sin. If we don't see sin for what it is, then the cross is pretty pointless. If our sin is the spiritual equivalent of an ingrown toenail... Then why did Jesus even bother with the cross? Now, of course, I would think that most of us agree, in theory, that sin is serious. But in our own minds, that usually means everybody else's sin is serious. My sin, well, it's pretty insignificant. Especially compared to people who abduct and kill children, for example. Isn't that the way that we tend to think? Bruce Milne says we have an incurable tendency to excuse ourselves. And we can find lots of reasons to excuse ourselves. We tell ourselves if God would take my circumstances into account, he'd realize that this sin is really unavoidable for me. Everybody's doing it. Obedience is too hard in my situation." And it doesn't even do anyone any harm. The moment we start excusing our sin. And downplaying the seriousness of it. The moment we begin ranking our sin on a scale against other people's sins. When we start doing that. We've lost the right perspective on sin. The reason all sin is serious is because it's first and foremost against God. Sin is an act of defiance against what God says is good. It's not for us to decide that some sins are major and other sins are insignificant. The same God who says don't murder also says don't deceive one another. Don't harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart. Yes, those sins might have different effects on other people. But they're all equally raising a middle finger up to God. They're all equally saying to God, you've set the standard and I reject your standard. Look at verse 3. Peter says to Ananias, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. Of course, Ananias had lied to man, but Peter's point is that was of relatively minor significance compared to the offense against God. And we find the same thing in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Joseph. When Potiphar's wife tried to get Joseph into bed with her, what did Joseph say? He said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Of course, Joseph knew it would be a sin against Potiphar too. But he realized the main offense would be against God. Joseph resisted the temptation to adultery. But later on, King David took his opportunity to commit adultery with Bathsheba. And in the aftermath of that, when David finally repented of his sin, he wrote Psalm 51. And in that psalm, he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. And we might say, well, what about Bathsheba? Wasn't she summoned to the king's bedroom? What about Uriah? Bathsheba was his wife. What about the whole nation of Israel? Hadn't their king David betrayed their trust? Yes, he sinned against all of those people. But the point is, first and foremost, his sin was against God. All sin is serious because it spits in the face of the holy God who made us. And it's serious because it serves Satan's plans. Look at verse 3 again. Ananias. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart. That you have lied to the Holy Spirit. God isn't the only one who is interested in the church. Satan is very interested in it too. And sin gives him the opportunity to damage the church from within. In Ephesians Paul says sin gives the devil a foothold. So yes, Ananias and Sapphira are responsible for this sin. But by doing it, they have played into Satan's hands. Think what damage this would have done if it went on unchecked. Think how quickly the unity of the church would have dissolved. It would have dissolved as genuine concern for each other gave way to struggles for personal power. And think how the church's witness would have suffered. My sin is never just about me. And it's not even just about me and God. My sin serves Satan's plans. I might think of my sin as a little thing. It's naughty but nice. But my sin strikes a blow for Satan's cause. And that alone should make me take sin seriously. Our willingness to fight sin in our hearts, or our lack of willingness to do that, that has repercussions in the life of the church. Our contentment with sin eats away at the church's unity. It saps the church's power. And it weakens the church's witness. And please don't hear this and go away thinking, well, I better keep my sin quiet then. Sin thrives when it's kept hidden. But the power of sin is broken when it's brought into the open and confessed. That's what Peter was looking for with Sapphira. The judgment came on her because she was determined to continue in her sin. If she'd confessed it and turned from it, she would have been spared. So the message here is not hide your sin. The message is bring it into the open. When we do that, it's like opening the door in a dark room. The light shines in and the power of the sin is taken away. Sin is serious. And therefore, God's judgment here has a gracious purpose. We've thought about the damage this sin could have caused. God's new community has barely got started at this point. It could have sunk in a mess of selfish squabbles before its first birthday. But God stepped in. And in doing so, he instilled one of the necessary traits of the church, a healthy fear of God. Verse 5 says that after Ananias dropped dead, great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then after Sapphira dies, verse 11 says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The fear of God is a theme that runs right through Scripture. And the fear of God just means never forgetting that He is God and we are not. God's people are not to have a cowering, terrified kind of fear of Him. He's our loving Father. He will forgive those who run to His open arms. And yet we must be very clear, God is not our mate. He's not the old man upstairs. He made us and he can unmake us just as easily. He is blindingly and perfectly holy. The writer of Hebrews writes to Christians and says this. Worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. One writer says, if we truly understood the power we're dealing with, we'd come to church wearing crash helmets. And I don't even think that was meant as a joke. I think it's significant that here in our passage, verse 11, is the first time the book of Acts refers to the church. It's as if we're being told, now the church understands its identity. Now these men and women understand that their God is holy. And they are called to be holy too. The God who is living among them will forgive repentant sinners, yes. But he will not excuse sin. He will not turn a blind eye to it. Back in chapter 4, verse 33, we were told that much grace was upon these believers. And what we've seen here in chapter 5 is also an aspect of God's grace. God's intervention here is terrible. It is. But it is at the same time a gracious thing. Now these men and women know that sin is dangerous. Playing with sin is playing with fire. It's not just a little thing. It's a deadly enemy of the church. And God will hold the church accountable for its attitude to sin. Both how we view it as individuals and how we deal with it as a church. Now I doubt that any of us have ever seen God intervene the way he does here. With instantaneous judgment. And so it's worth stopping to ask, why is that? Well, first of all, here in Acts, we're dealing with the birth of the church. There's probably a sense in which God is teaching a lesson for every other generation of the church. If the church takes acts seriously, it will be in no doubt about the seriousness of sin. And the way that this plays out in the rest of the New Testament is that the church takes church discipline very seriously. The church in the New Testament does not sit back and let sin infect the whole fellowship. It doesn't sit back and let sin destroy the church's witness. And it doesn't sit back waiting for God to strike down the unrepentant sinner. The church works hard to wake up the unrepentant sinner. And that is a gracious thing. Paul explains that one aim of church discipline is to bring the person to repentance. So that his or her spirit will be saved on the day of judgment. In other words, a loving church will be willing to give the unrepentant sinner a small taste of judgment in order to save that person from eternal judgment. So this passage teaches us a vital truth. The church needs a healthy fear of God. And this passage also motivates us to be gracious and practice church discipline. But I wonder if that's all there is to learn here. We might be feeling happy that things aren't like Acts 5 today. But I wonder if it's something we should be feeling happy about. Don Carson says this. It is when people are closest to the glory of God and when the Spirit is most manifest in revival... That God's judgment is most severe. Therefore, when there is little judgment falling, it is a sign of spiritual death. Could it be that we are actually quite relieved that God doesn't seem to interfere? Oh yes, I know that we do pray for revival. But do we really want all that revival entails? Do we really want God to come and turn over our tables in the church and smash our idols to pieces and turn our lives upside down? Do we really want that? Or deep down are we glad to come here every week and leave again without experiencing any of that consuming fire? Are you and I comfortable with a church that's a safe place to be? Before we ask God to send revival, maybe we should be asking Him to make us ready for revival. Otherwise, we might not survive it when it comes. Let's pray.